do me a favor. Close your eyes, unless you're driving, and imagine, if you will, a wooden ship alone in the ocean. It's at full sail, bobbing up and down, pressing forward through massive waves. Its deck busy with sailors climbing ropes, tying knots, shouting out orders, and turning cranks. Now imagine the wheel snaps off. Without it, the rudders are at the mercy of the water. The ship has lost its ability to steer. Regardless of how hard the sailors on deck work, the wind and the waves will now decide which course the ship will take. On calm waters, this can be repaired. The ship's course can be corrected. But in stormy waters, chaos ensues. In many ways, that ship you imagined was the United States in 1796, the year they lost their irreplaceable leader. Without someone to steer them through turbulence, the future of the nation was uncertain. In May of that year, America's first president, a man of unimpeachable character and the country's most exemplary citizen, retired from public service. Then, in December of 1799, just three and a half years later, America lost him for good. A man who had dedicated his life to the service of his country, who never asked for recompense, for thanks, or for honors, closed his eyes one last time, concluding a life lived with the utmost dignity and distinction. In life, his reputation loomed large over the nation, and even in death, he was a giant. The Marquis de Lafayette, his young French protege, described him well, once calling him, quote, the savior of his country, the benefactor of mankind, the protecting angel of liberty, the pride of America, and the admiration of two hemispheres. For Henry Lee, the man who eulogized him, he was even more. Described as, quote, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. His name was George Washington, and this is Rebellion. One precedent set by Washington that endeared him to the American people was traveling throughout the country in an attempt to visit all of its regions. Aside from, as he put it, quote, meeting well-informed persons who might give me useful information and advice on political subjects, Washington also made a point to discover the character of the nation he was leading. 
rather than remaining in the president's house, as it was called back then when it resided in New York and then Philadelphia, Washington braved storms to meet and greet American citizens from all walks of life and to pay tribute to his fallen soldiers at revolutionary battle sites throughout the country. Due to these efforts, he was met warmly and with great fanfare everywhere he went, thereby establishing himself as the people's president and furthering his great legacy as a leader of the utmost character. Washington's first term ended in 1792. After four years as president, which followed nearly eight years as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, Washington felt he had fulfilled his duties. He was ready to retire and return to private life. However, both Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, his secretaries of treasury and state respectively, who spent most of Washington's presidency at each other's throats over every issue, insisted he serve out a second term. It was clear to both men that at that time, America had not established enough unity to survive without him. Reluctantly, as he had accepted his position as commander-in-chief and as president, he agreed to serve out another term. Those two genius founding fathers Washington had placed in his first cabinet, Jefferson and Hamilton, whose beliefs and attitudes essentially created our lasting dual political parties, not only provided Washington with sage advice, but with enduring headaches as well. Washington had to learn from painful experience how to deal with those two egos. He had obviously had enormous experience in dealing with Hamilton's more brash, arrogant, and aggressive style from their time together during the Revolution. But he was not as adept at working with Jefferson, who was the opposite of Hamilton in political ideas as well as personality. Where Hamilton was confident and passionate about his opinions, Jefferson was reticent and unassuming preferring to work behind the scenes to use his diplomatic skills to achieve his political goals. Rather than viewing each other's differences as strengths, they both became suspicious of the other, with Jefferson taking Hamilton as an ambitious monarchist dead set on seizing power for himself. Hamilton, on the other hand, viewed Jefferson as sneaky, double-handed, and untrustworthy, also suspecting him of secretly lusting after power. Washington had to somehow simultaneously limit these two and harness their intellect. He even wrote to each of them during his first term, all but begging for them to cease their personal attacks, lest the country be torn apart from the inside. He was not unlike a basketball coach dealing with two hot-headed superstars who both wanted the ball in their hands with the game on the line. Jefferson resigned from his post as Secretary of State in 1793. A year later, Hamilton offered his resignation as well. Though Washington's two brightest advisors had constantly bickered, often taking part in defenseless personal attacks, their absence was sorely felt. 
As historian Ron Chernow put it, Washington, quote, had a fiendishly hard time finding replacements for his sterling first-term cabinet and turned by default to comparative mediocrities. In 1796, Washington, exhausted from a life spent in public service, could not be convinced this time to pursue another term. Before he retired to Mount Vernon, though, Washington wanted to leave his countrymen with some parting words. He enlisted the help of his closest confidant, Alexander Hamilton, to assist him in writing what he called his farewell address. These words would be published and distributed all over the country, wherein he would express his gratitude and admiration for the American people, offer advice for the future, and say goodbye. He began pretty much by begging the nation's forgiveness for retiring in the first place. As he always did in public addresses, he constantly expressed how unqualified he found himself for the honor of serving as the nation's first president. He only alluded to his accomplishments vaguely, not even listing them, only bringing them up to give credit to the American people. He then goes on to list his concerns for the future, assuring leaders, however, that his advice should be taken only as, quote, the disinterested warnings of a parting friend who can possibly have no personal motive to bias his counsel. He pleaded with the American people to maintain their unity. Without that unity, Washington feared the entire country would crumble. So he warned Americans to be wary of any leader who took advantage of political disagreements to fracture the nation's unity. To protect that unity, Washington advised all Americans to indignantly frown upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest and to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. He advised that Americans not be drawn into divisive rhetoric, which political actors may wish to inflame in order to drive them into opposing groups, namely political parties. He says of the matter, quote, you cannot shield yourselves too much against the jealousies and heartburnings which spring from these misrepresentations. They tend to render alien to each other those who ought to be bound together by fraternal affection. Wise words that our country quickly ignored once Washington left office and have been ignoring ever since. He continued on, reminding the people that the United States Constitution had been an improvement on the Articles of Confederation. He admitted that it was not perfect, reminding Americans that it could be altered in order for the nation to strive for a more perfect union. The bulk of his address acts as a plea to maintain neutrality in foreign affairs, referring to international relations as, quote, one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. 
instead of engaging in long-time alliances and rivalries, Washington counseled that all nations should be treated in good faith, both in political matters and in commerce. After apologizing for any mistakes he may have made during his tenure, the nation's first president said goodbye to his countrymen and spoke of his retirement as a final farewell, saying the following. Relying on its kindness in this as in other things, and actuated by the fervent love toward it, which is so natural to a man who views in it the native soil of himself and his progenitors for several generations. I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promise myself to realize, without alloy, the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens, the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. Signed, George Washington. In retirement, Washington put most of his focus on maintaining his farm and distillery at Mount Vernon with his beloved wife, Martha. He had been in service to his country for over four decades, beginning in the 1750s, leading the British Army in the French and Indian War, through the American Revolution, and two terms as president. And even though he was revered by all, having dedicated two-thirds of his life to public service, his country would ask for his help one more time. During the presidency of John Adams, Washington's vice president, who took over after he retired, relations with France had grown very tense. During what was termed a quasi-war with French and American vessels firing at each other at sea, Adams feared a French invasion. He turned to George Washington, who, in his late 60s, accepted the post just two years into his retirement on the immortal date of July 4th, this time in 1798. He and Hamilton were reunited, again ready to face a belligerent enemy and defend the land that they had helped shape. Luckily, the French never invaded, but Washington kept his position, ready to serve his country again should they need him. Just 17 months after signing on yet again as the head of the military, George Washington contracted an illness probably pneumonia or epiglottis, at the age of 67. As he lay in his bed, struggling to breathe, with Martha by his side, three different doctors struggled to diagnose and treat his illness. After several hours of effort, and his condition still worsening, Washington calmly asked the men to leave him be. It is noted that he told his physician, Doctor, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. His personal secretary, Tobias Lear, noted his last wishes as Martha held strong beside him. Before passing away peacefully some hours later, Lear recorded the general's final words. He told Martha, "'Tis well.'" 
tis well. When news of his death spread, the American people, as you may have guessed, were shocked and dismayed. In many ways, Washington represented the father of the nation, the undisputed leader of the people of the United States. Now, they were left adrift without their steadfast captain to steer the way. But mourners were not limited to American shores. Washington's death shook the world, and the response was that of great admiration and respect in every corner of the earth. Even their original enemy, the British, ordered their navy to lower their flags to half-mast. In France, with whom America had just recently escaped war, ten days of mourning were ordered throughout the country. Today, monuments stand in his honor in countries across South America, Europe, and Asia, as close as Mexico and as far as Thailand. Washington's life had been unthinkable. Born into a middle-class farming family, George somehow rose to the highest attainable position, earning nothing but respect, warmth, and gratitude along the way. His death left a hole in the nation that in many ways has never been filled. Major General Henry Lee performed his eulogy. Desperate indeed is any attempt on earth to meet correspondingly this dispensation of heaven. We can never cease lamenting the heart-rending privation for which our nation weeps. The founder of our federate republic, our bulwark in war, our guide in peace is no more. Oh, that this were but questionable, but alas, there is no hope for us. Our Washington is removed forever. When even our young and far-spreading empire shall have perished, still will our Washington's glory unfaded shine and die not until love of virtue cease on earth or earth itself sinks into chaos. His last scene comported with the whole tenor of his life, Lee concluded. Although in extreme pain, not a sigh, not a groan escaped him. And with undisturbed serenity, he closed his well-spent life. Such was the man America has lost. Such was the man for whom our nation mourns. was a man whose intentions could never be questioned. He was courageous, generous, compassionate, well-mannered, dedicated, and resolute. Upon meeting him, every man, woman, and child was struck by the way he gently commanded respect. His presence had always been steady, his eyes clear, the very picture of dignified grace. 
how stormy the fate of America appeared to be. Its political and moral leader had always remained, standing tall against the breakers, a beacon for those tossed upon the turbulent waves of history. with which Henry Lee closed his eulogy bear repeating. He described his fallen general as, quote, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. His name was George Washington, and this was Rebellion. Rebellion was produced by me, Dustin Connors. If you want to help support the show, one of the best and easiest things you can do is give it a rating on iTunes and write a review. The more ratings we receive, the easier it is for new listeners to discover the show. For more on this and other great stories, visit rebellionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.